Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum with me, Dr. Sarah Taylor Whiteway. When we come into our classrooms, we think about all the things that are conscious to us how we're feeling, what we're thinking, or maybe how the children are behaving or what they're doing in front of us. But have you ever stopped to think about the unconscious processes going on in the classroom? In this episode, we talk to Lynn Stammers, who is completing her PhD at the University of Sheffield. We explore the processes of projection and containment and how support for teachers is needed to manage these processes, alongside small steps that teachers can take in the classroom to encourage these processes. Welcome to the Emotional Curriculum. Thank you for coming on today. We're going to be talking about some work you're doing towards your thesis. But before we go into that, I was wondering what led you to do your thesis in this area? Well, it's a really, really long journey. And when I set out on it, I didn't expect to get to this point. Um, I wanted to leave teaching when I was in my 40s. I just felt I wasn't meeting children's needs. Um, I'd actually learnt, uh, come to teaching before the national curriculum. And while it wasn't perfect, there was much more flexibility. The relationships with the children, much easier. Um, and the focus of everything was creative, really. How can I make this more interest children? How can I incorporate their ideas? I did a, a counselling course and then decided to do a, applied psychology degree which was very very challenging and I did it over six years but by the end of that I realized the complexity of being was so immense how could we possibly work with children in the classroom and ignore everything that that psychology was telling us and there was no no provision no linking up no association between learning and why children might have a difficulty learning um and I went on and did an MA in um, SEN I became very interested in the relationship between the body and the brain so I'm really interested in that idea could you tell us a little more about what you did that linked the body and the brain there's a lady called Sally Goddard Blythe she was interested in neuroscience and its relationship to dyslexia and how early primitive movement affected how the brain developed and then impacted on reading. So uh, she devised and she encouraged people to devise programs um, that actually incorporated early primitive movement like crawling and balance and coordination and spatial awareness. Into, into a programme so that children would do, would do the programme. And it had effects on how chi- how the child learned. It changed the brain and it connected the brain and the body together. I, I worked with children who had no spatial awareness. So they, they, did have, they had no idea where 
on a piece of paper, they were supposed to begin. I, I worked in school with this programme and we found, I, I worked with the children from the lowest ability settings in reception and I'd got no idea if this was going to help them or not. You know, the programme I'd developed, would this, would this help? These children would normally begin to stagnate over some term. It was as if they'd reached some sort of limit. And we found that with this physical development programme, they didn't stagnate. They kept learning. It's really interesting. It's something that I think we don't often think about, how physical development could also be a part of learning. And then you went forward and managed to interweave this with ideas on emotional development too. Well, I've always been interested in, in emotional dyslexic children. It was more about how they felt about themselves as learners than teaching them how to read and the, the, the skills they needed for reading and writing. You, you can do that if the child is able to work with you um, and not terrified of making a mistake. So I trained then as a play therapy practitioner and that's when I began to see the relation between uh, the physical and the emotional and I began to feel in school that what we were doing the way we were sort of expecting children to just take in what was being delivered um, was totally inappropriate for most children and some children could manage it but a lot couldn't a lot would apply but how how much they really understood and it was these it was these feelings of frustration really and wanting to to find a way of communicating that drove me on and I developed um, another program called Dragon Academy using attachment theory and neuroscience but the communication between me and teachers in the school I was working in was extremely difficult it was because it was this there was this feeling all the time of I have to we have to teach the curriculum testing doesn't doesn't fit so I determined to find find out more and find out how it would fit and eventually uh, I was 62 and I decided the end you know was, was coming the end of my career was coming what could I do to communicate all this, you know, to make, to, to just communicate better um, and understand more. And that's how I got to do the PhD. And so you spoke there about using neuroscience, kind of the study of the brain and what's going on in the brain, but your thesis took it one step further and started looking actually at the mind, the unconscious level of what's going on in the classroom. Tell us a little bit about why that felt important to look into in the classroom we take absolutely no account of the unconscious so the, in the classroom you've got the teacher's unconscious and the child's unconscious working doing their own thing um, and while ever you're not aware that that's going on you, you're going on blindly sort of thinking you know you're doing a fantastic job delivering this curriculum and you've got no idea what's happening in these children's minds and how they're taking it in. And it seems to me that the unconscious is an aspect of learning, um, and which is where emotions lie, which, which isn't, it's not given any credence at all. 
absolutely it's so important that's what's guiding so much of the decisions and the behavior in the classroom at all times and yet we're thinking so surface level aren't we of what's being taught how are you teaching that yeah and so to understand what's happening and to understand containment what you what you need to understand is something of the unconscious process the child's in and one of those is projection so that if we start with a baby the baby has no mental framework to handle any of the experiences. So uh, when it feels pain in its tummy or its bowels, it has nowhere to go with that pain. That pain just fills the mind completely. And it really, uh, in the only ways we could describe it using words, which the baby obviously doesn't have, is that they feel like they're going to be annihilated. It's going to be the end of them. And the only way that they can handle that is to be able to push push that emotion out into somebody else, which is a difficult concept to understand. And I, and I know, I know that. Uh, but they, the carer that then, the mother or whoever's the primary carer, can take those feelings and by offering back soothing comments and soothing holding actually takes all that pain and gives it back in a way that the the child feels calmed somebody understands and that's that's what containment is really it's it's having another mind that's that's capable of taking what i'm feeling and being able to return it back to me in a much calmer way and so my understanding of that is that what containment would look like in an adult context would be going to a friend and talking about a difficult day that you've had and that friend not panicking but just listening and hearing and calmly being able to absorb all that emotion that you're letting out in the conversation so that you leave feeling the situation hasn't changed but that the emotion feels more manageable around the situation yeah 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 the carer the caregiver will obviously not know the answer initially it's only by calming the baby down that the carer can then sort of find the answer Mm. so the mother might say to the baby are you hungry is that what it is you know or uh have you got tummy ache and she's verbalizing what the baby and it's that verbalization that eventually impacts on on the the structure of the baby's mind so the the parents are helping to form a framework for the baby to function with it and that's really important because without a framework mentally you, you don't you you won't get progression and you won't get development when a child walks through the door you don't know where they're coming from you don't know what their experience that morning or over the weekend or over any part of their life has been and I think it's really important to know what they need is somebody that can that can handle their emotions and if they've experienced a caregiver who um, abandons a baby in a cot with a bottle rather than holding them close and, and feeding them either breast or bottle if they've never had that experience of being fed 
when they need it, then it's very hard for them to come to the classroom and say, you've got something I'm, I'm ready to hear. I'm ready to, I'm, I'm ready to, to take in. So uh, Tamara Beebe says, very often what's expected in the classroom are children with open mouths. With open mouths, we can just pour in the food. Learning is, is in psychoanalytic terms, is about feeding, about digesting and about um, swallowing more than what we can chew so it doesn't get properly digested. And containment is, is not only about um, providing a safe place to feel, to feel emotion, to feel vulnerable, but of knowing that what you're going to be fed, you're actually going to want. Um, you have to be able to trust the person if we give them something that they're not able to take in. They're just going to get all clogged up with things and not able to, to digest them. Yeah. And then and then they can't they can't incorporate that into a mental framework and mental structure. OK, so we have these children and young people bringing all these prior experiences into the classroom and teachers need to try and manage all these emotions that they're bringing and that's a prerequisite for these children to engage and to digest the work that you're trying to teach um, and without this they won't be able to add in any of the work or any of the teaching into their understanding of the world. Yeah in order for the teacher to provide this containing experience they're going to need to know what it's like to be contained you you can't carry this emotion that children offer especially children who are um dysregulated you can't carry that without uh it having an emotional impact on you so you need to have somewhere to go where you can be contained and where you can handle that. And generally nowhere in school to do that. In school, um, you know, staff meetings might be ideal if people trusted each other enough. But school staff meetings tend to be about organising the school. And so you touched on, you mentioned dysregulation there. And this process of teachers taking emotions into their own minds and passing them back in a manageable way so that the children and the young people that they're working with can digest the learning around them. That's very difficult and challenging when you're faced with a dysregulated child. Yeah, I think there can be a tension between keeping emotional distance to protect ourselves from these children who, who can feel very threatening and what and wanting to help if we have any feeling at all that we're going to lose it you know that we're gonna not being able to manage this situation then then there's no way containment can take can take place at that point the person needs to be like this calm mother that's able to accept the baby's feeling and it's very very difficult if at that point we can be aware of you know what what am I feeling right now? What's this doing to me? I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the first step to be aware of that. So you, you don't jump in. You, you sort of think about yourself first. And then it's just, it's a matter of 
offering something, some sort of understanding, like, I can see you're really upset and I don't know why. You know, maybe, you know, you need um, someone to listen to, to play for a little bit. Maybe you've got something to, to tell me. I'd like to understand, but I don't know how to do it. And and you're not you're not pushing the problem away. You're saying you're offering genuine help. You're saying I don't know I don't know how to help you. Maybe you can help me understand. So in a way, you're taking responsibility for their feelings, and you're you're saying you're offering a container. You're saying tell me, bring it to me, so that I I can hold it. Um, but that takes an awful lot of trust. And these children have been through such a difficult life generally. It's going to take a long time to do that. And really it can only happen in a classroom if there's a sense of contentment within the school. And if there's a sense of safety whereby the teacher doesn't feel um, that they're failing and that they feel guilty at this. These things can, can only be managed at a very broad level, really, yeah. and may need therapeutic intervention if, if the child is really, really dysregulated. And in your paper, you spoke about a really interesting process that happens that dysregulated children can make teachers and staff lose touch with their own feelings. And so what can be done in the context to support teachers going through this? They need to know that they've, they're being contained by somebody. They need to know that they can, they've got someone to go to that they can say, look, I'm just finding this too difficult. But also, I think there's a lot of training that needs to go on to help people not work in a behavioural way because that about controlling behaviour has got nothing to do with this unconscious aspect of the child. And I think it's, I think in order to, be a container you have to know what what you're dealing with and what you're containing and why so you know they're projecting all these unpleasant feelings onto you and you you might 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 come across to them as somebody that really cares and they they think oh gosh this this is somebody I can really engage with and let all my feelings out so they can they can take them they're desperate for somebody to take all these horrible feelings and help them make sense of them Unless the teacher understands where all that's coming from, they, they won't stand a chance of of being able to contain it. The mother's in a very fortunate position generally because she's got this cute little baby that, oh, you know, causes her to feel these strong, loving emotions and and, um, and to think, oh, I really want to help, you know, I really want to stop you crying. I really don't like it when you're crying. And for an insecure mother, it's going to be very difficult then because she's going to feel this is my fault this is this this is my fault oh this baby I can't do it um oh I can't do this I can't do that oh I don't know what's wrong and the teacher can feel exactly the same the interesting thing about psychoanalysis is it encourages to think of the child in front of us as an infant this is an infant who's not had the opportunity um of I'm not going to say no, it's not normal, but yeah, a usual trajectory. They're, they're on, these children are on a completely different trajectory. So what might 
work with a child who's um, in, in Bowlby's terms attached and secure won't work for this child because they're on a different trajectory. The, the way we teach children, we're expecting them to be on a certain trajectory and to go chronologically in that, in that way and they don't and they can go backwards. Um, they can go sideways. They, all sorts of things can happen. So the sense I'm really getting from you is that a learning environment which supports this idea of containment is one where containment runs through the whole school. And I'm wondering if this takes us full circle back to what you were saying at the beginning about the national curriculum and maybe the way schools are set up with following the curriculum and testing doesn't allow for teachers to think about containment and the unconscious processes in the classroom. Yeah, and you need the school environment to be to be with you and we have to see each other not as individuals but as a team as an organism where where the unconscious processes of children are recognized and an attempt made really for people to come together wonder what could be happening for him or I wonder and to have you have to have other in psychoanalysis you have to have another mind to understand understand it because we we've got unconscious processes we've got things that we defend against failure is is a huge thing that we defend against wanting to be seen as a very good organized teacher who gets results you know it, it, it it's what we all want and i used to find when when i was struggling the thing that i'd turn my mind to would be organizing the classroom organizing the display boards making the classroom look super you know, a super learning environment. Um, and that was, that was, I loved that. I loved organising the classroom. <laughs> oh, I can move this here and do that there. But what, what was more difficult was to stay in touch with the children and their feelings. So do you think if you'd had all the knowledge and the reading that you have now, when you were a teacher in the classroom, you would have been a different teacher? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely, totally different. Totally, but it would have been difficult in the environment I was in because it it's difficult for the school to take it. But I would say any step that any teacher makes towards making a containing environment, so recognizing the significance of play in children's well-being and their the use of that in developing their language and their thought processes, symbolism, making meaning out of things that they find difficult to understand. Any any move towards that and towards being able to say to children, I don't know the answer, but, but we can find out together. Any step towards that is a good thing. When I was working in classrooms, I had to, uh, as a support teacher, I had to work with groups of children uh, and the, the the difficulty was, how do I bring what I know into this situation? Um, and I just had to sort of find little ways. Ooh, you know, perhaps if we do it like this, you don't have to go the whole hog. It's just about making inroads in. And with some ch- children, you'll be more successful than others. And the idea is that you, you're not perfect. You just have to be good enough good enough for these children a good enough teacher you don't have to be the perfect brilliant singing or dancing teacher you just need to be good enough for these children to trust you 
and to open their mouths for you so that you don't feel you're having to hold them open and pour it in. And so the underlying message is really that containment and offering containment is going to help children voluntarily open their mouths and absorb the learning around them and encourage and engage their curiosity and their their passion for learning. Yeah, there's a there's a fundamental belief in psychoanalysis and um, in in psychodynamic fields as well that all children have an innate desire to learn. There is a propulsion forward. There is a desire to learn. That's that's the whole purpose of being born and growing. And if you have any child that isn't interested in learning, you won't help them by trying to pour stuff into them. You have to wonder why doesn't this child want to learn? And the 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 answer will lie in their early learning experience. So if if all children want to learn, what is it that makes learning possible in education? Children learn. There's no doubt children learn. It's what they learn. So what are we trying to teach them? Are we trying to teach them you must on the carpet, you must sit still with your legs crossed and your arms folded? Is that is that what we're trying to teach them? Um, if a child thinks that's all there is to learning, what is it we're trying to teach? What is it they're learning? Um, most children, I think, spend a lot of time trying to work out what the teacher wants and give the teacher what they want because that's what they've learned because they want to please the teacher. And if we reward that, we're rewarding compliance, not learning. And I mean, that's a whole, oh, Sarah, that's a whole big subject, you know, <laughs> how we reward compliance automatically in the classroom. That is ultimately what we're doing a lot of the time. You let me feed you, you give me back what I want, and I'll reward you. And it's, it's not quite as stark as that, but the complexity of the, the relationship between the child and the teacher is... Uh, it's just not straightforward and, and compliance is is a big issue, I think, because you're ultimately going to get children that aren't compliant. So what's the answer with them if you're wanting compliance? You, you, you've got to start thinking of of other ways of seeing learning. As you say, it's such a big issue that we can't get into now and makes us question the goal of education. But I think one of the positive things to take from our discussion today is that there are small things that teachers can do to move it in the right direction. And that's really uplifting. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So thank you, Lynn, very much for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe and you can follow us on Twitter at emcurriculum. You can email us at theemotionalcurriculum at gmail.com. See you soon.